the Republicans to wake up. Is what the Republican Party right now is not led by conservatives. There's a population out there that has to be told the truth. Um, we have to. Do it live! Now, from the left coast, it's another podcast edition of the Peter B. Collins Show. Peter B. is curious, opinionated, and relentless in pursuit of the truth like a honeybee drawn to pollen. He's an independent progressive, ready to sting Republicans and Democrats alike when they deserve it. After years in commercial radio, Peter B. welcomes you to this audio adventure in news and politics with no corporate filter. Bienvenidos. Listeners support this program, and you can help at PeterBCollins.com. Here's your humble host, Peter B. Your humble host is grateful to fine listeners like Grant Gibson, Natalie Real of Montana, and Jeannie Richards. They are regular voluntary subscribers to this broadcast and you can help too if you like just log on to my website at peterbcollins.com on the right hand side the tab says you can help click on it our voluntary paypal subscriptions start as low as five dollars a month in the second portion of this podcast we're going to talk about the nuclear summit nuclear that is not nuclear that recently was held in Washington, D.C., President Obama gathering the leaders of 47 nations. And we'll get some detailed commentary from General Robert Gard. He fought in Korea and Vietnam, and he's now the chair at the Center for Arms Control and Nonproliferation. And that's coming up later in this podcast. But first, we're going to check in on the status of returning veterans from the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. And let's work up a little lather here, a little anger from John Fogarty. Yes, do you remember... The strained debate that took place when George W. Bush was president, and uh, often twice a year, he would ram through supplemental appropriation bills to keep the cost of the war in Afghanistan and Iraq off the books. And he'd always mal-mal the Democrats by saying that he supported the troops and they didn't. Joshua Coors has been writing for The Nation and now for The Huffington Post very much in detail and with great compassion about the way returning veterans have been treated. And now there's a story that is really wrenching that is about a soldier who was wounded in the war zone and treated so shabbily, so shamefully that... It's hard to disguise my contempt for the leaders who would say that they supported the troops. Joshua Kors, welcome back to the Peter B. Collins Show. Good to be with you, Peter. Joshua, you have written uh, over the last few years very ably and uh, with real compassion about the way returning veterans have been treated. Uh, Your story about Specialist John Town was a cover story on The Nation a couple of years back. And you have a new cover story and a new soldier with a troubling story, Sergeant Chuck Luther. And before we talk about Sergeant Luther, give our listeners uh, a quick briefing on what it means to be diagnosed with personality disorder at the time of discharge from the military. Sure. Well, personality disorder itself is a severe mental illness that usually develops in childhood, but that's completely irrelevant to this conversation. They're using, that, uh, they meaning the, the military, uh, is using that mental illness as a fraudulent way of taking physically wounded soldiers coming back from combat in Iraq and Afghanistan and flushing them out the side door of the military in a way that they can't receive disability or medical care. Uh, for the rest of their lives, 
it's a great way for the military to save money. But the uh, wounds that they're attributing now to personality disorder are, are simply comic. Uh, with uh, John Town, as we spoke before, he was a soldier who had won a Purple Heart after being wounded by a rocket attack, uh, lost a significant amount of his hearing in that explosion. They said his deafness was caused by personality disorder. Uh, with Sergeant Chuck Luther, we have a, a scenario that's similar, but also more grotesque. He was wounded by mortar fire while serving at Camp Taji in Iraq, and uh, as a result of the traumatic brain injury, slamming his head against the concrete in, in the course of that explosion, he developed uh, severe headaches, headaches so bad that he would lose vision in one eye. Uh, he told me the other eye it was like someone stabbing a scissors into his head. Uh, when he went to the aid station to get help, they told him that his blindness was caused by personality disorder. Now, uh, we have, uh, through this domestic uh, health insurance debate, heard a lot about pre-existing conditions and uh, lifetime caps and the way that these cruel commercial insurance companies deny benefits to people uh, using these flimsy excuses of, of pre-existing conditions or, sorry, uh, you've reached your maximum benefit allowance. It's hard to fathom, though, how fellow soldiers in the military, in a war zone, could see Sergeant Luther present with these injuries directly related to a combat event. He was in a guard tower when this mortar hit. It's not like he, you know, was lounging, uh, reading girly magazines or, you know, I mean, we could make up all kinds of scenarios, but this is, by definition, a combat injury. And yet when he went to seek medical attention, he was treated like a detainee at Guantanamo. He was. You know, I, before we go into that Guantanamo, well, the, the detainee aspect of this, I, I want to go back to what you said about the insurance. It's a key part of this. Anyone who understands what's going on with the health care troubles and with the insurance use of pre-existing conditions understands what's going on here because it's the exact same thing. The reason personality disorder is used as a as a cause for these physical wounds is because personality disorder is listed as a pre-existing condition. And if they can say your wounds was ca were caused by a pre-existing condition, then you're not eligible for disability pay and you're not eligible for long-term medical care. Now, why is it in the, in the interest of a diagnosing medical uh, doctor in the military to drum somebody out of the service and deny them the health benefits that they certainly earned uh, by being injured in combat. Do they, they get bonuses? Do they have a budget to meet or a quota of denials to issue? It's a really interesting and, and bizarre question. It was something that I've been thinking about in the three and a half years that I've been reporting on this story. Um, you know, this is part three in that series, and part two, I spoke with military doctors who talked about the pressure on them from superiors to purposely misdiagnose wounded soldiers. One told me the story of a soldier who came back from Iraq with a chunk missing from his leg. He was pressured to diagnose that soldier as having personality disorder. And at that point, he said, that's it. I quit. I'm not going to do that. Um, in other cases, I think you'd find that is part of the culture. And anyone who's been working inside these hospitals I can vouch to that. Uh, there was a scandal at uh, Fort Carson in Colorado uh, when uh, Daniel Zwerdling of NPR exposed that the top doctor at the hospital there was pressuring his doctors to uh, use pre-existing conditions, personality disorder, uh, as a way to get soldiers out without benefits. Um, he was saying that soldiers, they can fake their symptoms. Believing them and going with a physical wound is not the right path for the, uh, the, the doctors there. There was uh, another case with a uh, leading doctor in Texas who was telling the doctors under her command that they simply didn't have the money 
to diagnose physical wounds that would require benefits. So go ahead and find a pre-existing condition like personality disorder or adjustment disorder. Words uh, in some ways fail me here, Joshua, but grotesque is what comes to mind. Here we have a combat situation. We have a soldier who's seriously injured on duty. He presents for medical care, and they treat him like the worst drill sergeant uh, you can imagine uh, in the military, saying, buck up, take some ibuprofen, and get back on the job. Now, that doesn't serve anybody's interest to put a wounded soldier on, say, guard duty or patrol duty, puts the rest of the unit uh, or an entire base at significant risk. And the cost of denying care uh, in theater uh, really just creates a a series of problems that will cost more long term. So uh, this is irrational. It's wrongheaded. And it's downright immoral. And as I uh, framed this discussion, you know, we heard all during the Bush era that when they were squeezing more money out of Congress with these supplemental appropriations, any Democrat who opposed them as an effort of sending a message in opposition to the war in Iraq was described as, you know, not supporting the troops. And the Republicans made this, this talking point hit home repeatedly, that we support the troops and the Democrats don't. Well, uh, as the party in power that uh, brought us this war and kept uh, cramming it down our throats, um, you know, it's incumbent that they live up to even those talking points. And, and so to see these people treated in this manner and to, you know, the story of, of Sergeant Luther goes on, and we'll detail more of it in a moment, but just uh, the, the basic incidents that occurred after he was injured and their efforts to take uh, a serious head wound and describe it as a personality disorder and, and a, a condition that existed before he was injured. Uh, number one, you contradicted by quoting his fellow soldiers and family members in your article. But number two, it's not in the self-interest of the military in a combat situation to treat people this way and to put them back on the job. Well, I wouldn't describe this as irrational thinking from the military. Irrational, perhaps, in trying to push the idea that personality disorder could cause hearing loss, uh, shrapnel embedded in soldiers' skin, or uh, all the other types of uh, bizarre injuries I've looked at with the dozens of cases I've studied in these past years. But not irrational from a financial point of view. It takes a tremendous amount of money to train a soldier and to get him to combat in Iraq and Afghanistan, uh, they're going to do everything they can to hold on to that soldier once he's there, uh, to bring someone from America and replace the soldier that's wounded there in Iraq and Afghanistan is a huge cost. They can save that if they simply tell them, hey, take that ibuprofen, get back there and and fight some more. but let's go to the specifics of the second half of his story, because that is really where the horror starts. It wasn't just that he was diagnosed as having personality disorder. It's what happened when he refused to agree to that condition. He came into the hospital or the, uh, the aid station there, and they said personality disorder. He said, that's ridiculous. Uh, you know, I, I, I've... I've been an adult for many years. I've passed eight screenings here. I've won dozens of medals. I do not have this severe mental illness. They said, okay, we're going to put you in a closet. And they held him there for over a month under enforced sleep deprivation, keeping the lights on all night, blasting Megadeth music at him all through the night. And finally, after a month, he was willing to sign anything. He signed the papers saying personality disorder, and they shipped him back to Fort Hood where they informed him that discharge means no disability pay, no medical care for the rest of your life. And by the way, because you were kicked out with a personality disorder and didn't complete your contract, you have to give back a slice of your signing bonus. Here's a bill for $1,500. Wow. I mean, that's just one insult uh, piled on another. And 
it, it is inhuman and unconscionable. And it, it's, it's amazing because this is not the only story like this, Joshua. You have detailed for us that there are perhaps as many as 22,000 who have been discharged with a, a PD diagnosis? That's right. Since 2001, uh, the military has discharged 22,600 soldiers with this personality disorder. We're looking at a savings to the military of over $12 billion. Wow. Um, but I want to go back to the political aspect you touched on before. This is truly not a democratic or Republican issue. I've received calls from soldiers going back to the Vietnam era saying this happened to me back then. This has been uh, either a policy or a culture that extends back generations. It's only now coming to light. And in your article, you also discussed that a guy named Senator Barack Obama uh, considered this a very important issue. He wrote a bill uh, that did not, uh, I guess, get out of committee. And then some watered-down language was attached to a defense appropriations bill in 06 or 07. Is that right? That's right. Actually, in, uh, in 08, just before President Bush left office, uh-huh. his bill, which was co-written by a Republican Senator Kit Bond, was to halt these personality disorder discharges. Uh, but Obama never spoke about it on the campaign trail. He did uh, not address it since taking office. And so really nobody has known about this issue outside of Washington. Uh, The only thing they could do without that widespread knowledge was to water down the language, get it as an amendment to that appropriations bill. And the amendment required the Pentagon to do a study on personality disorder discharges. Uh, But Peter, perhaps it won't come as a surprise to you that after five months of study, they released a document saying that they had concluded no soldiers had been wrongly diagnosed and no soldiers had been wrongly discharged. Zero. Zero. And that, again, was troubling to so many of these military families because with the Touchmore reporting, I found out something else about that study, that they hadn't spoken to a single soldier in the course of that study. It reminded so many families of an earlier study about personality disorder done by the Army Surgeon General. Uh, Her five-month, quote-unquote, thoughtful and thorough review, in her words, also involved not a single interview with a single soldier. You'd think that talking to the soldiers whose cases they were reviewing would be of prime importance, but uh, the Army didn't see it that way. And as a result, that study again concluded that no soldiers had been wrongly discharged. Now, in, in an ordinary workplace environment, if an employer treated uh, employees in this manner, uh, there would be all kinds of repercussions. Uh, if there's a union involved, uh, there would be a, a, a strike or a walkout of some sort. And under domestic law, Uh, you have many rights under both state and federal law uh, to pursue an employer uh, who would uh, put you at risk and then when you're injured claim that it happened before you worked for them and therefore they're not responsible. And so we have to look at the uh, Defense Department as an employer and say that uh, uh, in in that view, Joshua, they are unfit. Uh, to (laughs) employ people, and that there should be some disclosure at the time of recruitment, at the time of hiring, that these are the policies and this is what you could face if you're injured on the job working for this employer, the U.S. Army, Navy, Marine, or Air Force. Well, you know, one of the changes that came out of that Pentagon study um, released recently was... uh, further protections, as the Pentagon called it, to soldiers who are being discharged. And now the diagnosis has to be done by a proper doctor, and a lawyer has to be there to explain to the soldier what the repercussions of that discharge are going to be. Uh, Another aspect is that um, the, uh, the superiors in each of the branches 
of the military have to look at each case as it comes and uh, put the stamp of approval on it before the soldier is officially discharged. But I talked with Senator Kit Bond, who co-wrote that bill with Barack Obama, and he said he's seen those changes and he's seen the difference it has made. And he said the difference in his eyes is somewhere between zero and less. Uh, we're still having soldiers discharged, and we're still having soldiers being denied benefits. Well, and Joshua, while you would think that having a, a superior officer uh, review the case and sign off on it would enhance the protections for the individual, uh, I think the opposite is generally true. There, there certainly may be some compassionate commanders and uh, even higher-ranking uh, military brass who would uh, look objectively and uh, honor uh, the needs of an injured soldier. But uh, we're seeing this kind of chain of command review principle also being embraced by the Obama White House in a uh, bill called uh, Senate Bill 372. And this relates to whistleblowers who come forward and expose wrongdoing. And in the military and national security arena, whistleblowers have very little protection already. And so in the name of enhancing the protection for whistleblowers, they're setting up a new process where the very official who fired the whistleblower or somehow sanctioned them for their actions is the one who reviews their case. <laughs> and so, I mean, it, it gives Catch-22 uh, a new dimension. And uh, this bill, uh, we, we've done a program on it, and people can hear the podcast with Stephen Cohn uh, at my website, peterbcollins.com. He is the attorney and uh, director of the National Whistleblowers Center in Washington. And this bill, 372, is before Senator Lieberman's uh, Homeland Security Committee, and the White House uh, has been uh, amending it uh, to basically create this, uh, this circle of injustice. And this bill, again, purported to enhance the rights of whistleblowers, actually reduces the existing rights for whistleblowers at the FBI. So I want to encourage people to uh, take a hard look at that. It's not on anybody's radar. Uh, last week when I was sitting in on Tom Hartman's program, I raised it with uh, Senator Bernie Sanders, and he kind of quickly changed the subject. He said, I'm not on that committee, and I don't know that bill. Uh, but that's, to me, no excuse, because it will hit the Senate floor at some point. And uh, we need to uh, raise attention and get people to take a look at it, because it's part of this whole problem, where the military is able to treat people in, uh, again, words fail me here, a shabby fashion, uh, and then contain the damage through these internal bureaucratic mechanisms and come up with uh, the astounding report that you referred to, Joshua, that uh, there are no discharges that are uh, faulty under this uh, diagnosis of a, a pre-existing personality disorder. And we know from the anecdotal and your, your excellent reporting that that is simply a lie. Well, I think anyone who looks at these reviews... Uh, is confused by these conclusions. Obviously, the idea that the military is taking a second look at these policies and looking at the basic paradox of a personality disorder discharge, if these soldiers actually did have a severe mental illness, how did they get through the screening process to begin with? Uh -huh. and, and certainly the soldiers I looked at, uh, dozens of cases in these recent years, these are all soldiers who had passed multiple reviews, uh, first getting into the military and then before deployment, some even more afterwards. With uh, Luther, we were looking at eight reviews that he had passed without this quote-unquote mental illness being found. Uh, but the structure of the reviews themselves is another true head-scratcher. Uh, I mentioned the uh, review by the Army Surgeon General a few years ago. In that case, the person she tapped to do the review was one of the doctors who actually diagnosed personality disorder. It wasn't a surprise to many veterans groups when that doctor c concluded that his own diagnoses were correct. 
And Joshua, I, I want to come back to uh, the way he was treated at this so-called aid station where they essentially locked him in a closet, uh, or actually it wasn't locked. The door was open and there were armed guards there confining him to this uh, tiny closet with uh, no window, uh, what, a little peephole view of the outside. And I want to direct people to uh, thenation.com, where you can read this article, and also it's posted at the Huffington Post, because if you look at it online, there are links to uh, the previous story about specialist John Town, and there's also a link to a collection of photographs that you have on your website, Joshua, that were supplied by Sergeant Luther. Um, describe what these photos depict. That's another amazing part of this story. At joshuacores.com, you can find all kinds of documents about this story, including photos that Sergeant Luther took of the isolation chamber that they put him in um, with a, a small cracked window. This is basically the wa- size of a walk-in closet. In fact, it was used as exactly that, uh, stuffed with a desk, boxes, and a small container for him to urinate. Um, he did try to leave that closet at one point, but uh, at that point he was pinned down and injected with sleeping medication, then returned to the closet. Again, words fail me here because I've been a bitter critic of the treatment of prisoners at Guantanamo and Bagram and elsewhere in the American Gulag. Uh, But to inflict this on our own soldiers uh, in a war, a a combat zone situation, when his only failing is that he asked for medical care, and they basically said, well, we've diagnosed you uh, with a personality disorder, and now we're going to give you one. Because we're going to lock you in a room and play Megadeth until you scream uh, that we stop it. And uh, this is, is subhuman. And uh, I I hope that your cover story on the nation, Joshua, will draw the appropriate attention uh, and that our sleepy Congress will awake to its oversight duties and really make sure that the next military budget bill includes language that precludes this from ever happening again. Well, as an American, I certainly hope so. I know that... uh Sergeant Luther shares your view of what happened. I, he said, I was just going in for medical care, and all of a sudden it didn't feel like medical care at all. It felt a lot more like enhanced interrogation. Uh, but again, you know, if uh, listeners go to joshuacores.com, they can see photos of uh, that closet they put him in. It's sort of amazing they didn't take away his camera, but there are a lot of idiosyncrasies in this story. And, um, you know, I... I think I look at that closet, I see the, you know, basically the cot-sized room that he was living in. I think I would have gone crazy if I had been stuck in there for a month. I think anybody would have. Yeah. Well, Joshua, thanks for joining us today. Kors is K-O-R-S, his website, joshuacores.com. And again, you can uh, read this article at thenation.com and also at huffingtonpost.com. Joshua, thanks for joining me here on the Peter B. Collins Show. Thanks so much, Peter. And the Peter B. Collins Show continues, sponsored by the Organic Wine Company. Now that you're eating organic, it's time to drink organic. Try the fine, earth-friendly wines imported by the Organic Wine Company since last century, 1980. Click on the link on my homepage at peterbcollins.com for a special introductory offer for you, the listeners of the Peter B. Collins Show. In mid-April in Washington, the leaders of 47 nations gathered in one of the most comprehensive international forums since the United Nations initial meetings in San Francisco back in 1949, I think it was. And the subject was nuclear weapons. Here's a song about that.
Joining us to talk about this important conference is retired Lieutenant General Robert G. Gard, Jr. He is chairman of the Center for Arms Control and Nonproliferation, and his military career included combat in Korea and Vietnam. He served a three-year tour in Germany and also served as executive assistant to two secretaries of defense. General Gard, welcome to the Peter B. Collins Show. I'm pleased to participate. Thank you for talking with us, sir. And who were those defense secretaries that you assisted? Uh, Robert McNamara and Clark Clifford. Very interesting. Well, you have uh, quite a history there, particularly when it comes to the uh, nuclear weapons uh, around the world and, of course, the U.S. arsenal. Uh, First up, uh, without any tainting from me, what is your take on this uh, important conference that President Obama assembled uh, that just concluded? Well, I think it was an important conference because the problem of loose fissile materials around the world has been dealt with in far too routine a manner. It has not received the priority that the dangers it poses deserve. So by highlighting highlighting this issue with a heads of state meeting, I hope that the president has energized those who possess such materials to take much more seriously the need to ensure that they are secure. And he, for example, uh, honored South Africa for dismantling its nuclear weapons program. And uh, the breakouts uh, or developments at this conference included uh, Ukraine and Kazakhstan, a former Soviet republics. Uh, saying that they are going to dispose of uh, their nuclear weapons and uh, nuclear materials. There are some asterisks on that, but uh, were there any other key developments from your point of view that uh, maybe the media didn't highlight? Well, there were some other commitments, one from Mexico to convert its research reactor that uses highly enriched uranium to low-enriched uranium, which cannot be fabricated into uh, a nuclear weapon. Uh, By the way, the uh, uh, Kazakhstan and the Ukraine gave up their weapons in the early 90s and shipped them back uh, to Russia, but they still have highly enriched uranium in their country, and they've agreed to get rid of that. Mm Mm-hmm. And uh, Kazakhstan has an interesting proposal. They want to essentially set up uh, uh, a facility for blending down. And maybe you know more about this than I do. I've just learned this term recently. But the highly enriched uranium, uh, the highest level of enriched uranium, is used for nuclear weapons. A lower level of enriched uranium is used for Uh, medical uh, facilities, and also for electric power generation driven by nukes. Uh, Kazakhstan wants to set up its uh, kind of a regional center uh, for blending down uh, the highly enriched uranium. Uh, Do you think that's a a reasonable proposal, and can we trust that nation uh, to essentially be a a regional center? Well, it depends on, on, on how it evolves. If they put it under the control of the International Atomic Energy Agency, and this is usually the proposals that are made in trying to uh, develop regional centers that can furnish uh, fuel for reactors made from either down-blended, what's called MOX fuel, or other fuels other than highly enriched uranium. Mm-hmm. And so uh, I, I think this is good development. Russia has <clears throat> has offered to develop such a facility as well. And we uh, in the United States have advocated these, these regional fuel banks so that countries with power reactors have sources of fuel that are under control uh, rather than employing highly enriched uranium to power their reactors, either either their uh, reactors for electrical power or their research reactors. And, General, what's your take on dealing with a dictator? I can't pronounce this guy's name from Kazakhstan. <laughs> uh, but, uh, you know, on the one hand, an authoritarian regime 
uh, has more control over its uh, facilities and uh, might actually have a better opportunity of preventing any kind of uh, uh, leaks or uh, thefts of uh, nuclear materials. And, of course, on the other hand, when you're dealing with an authoritarian regime, um, those materials could be diverted for unintended uses, and also we end up propping up a, a dictator who's got a really sorry record on democracy and human rights. Well, that's the dilemma. Unfortunately, given the reality, we have to deal with countries whose governments we don't uh, endorse. Uh, I, I would be comfortable with this because they don't have any intercontinental ballistic missiles. I doubt that they have the technology to, to produce a nuclear weapon that would fit on top of the missile that they don't have. Mm-hmm. So uh, I'm all right with it, although I certainly understand the dilemma of doing business with, with uh, totalitarian regimes that we, whose governments we do not care for. Now, this conference produced an agreement, and it's really a gentleman's agreement, uh, and, and I'm not trying to be a, a sniper about this, but I just want to be honest, that uh, while these heads of state have agreed to return in a couple of years to uh, talk further about this and report in on their progress, and a goal has been set to secure all nuclear materials, fissile materials, over the next four years, uh, there's no real enforcement mechanism This is uh, done outside of the United Nations or any other uh, world body. And so uh, what do you think the level of credibility is uh, of this effort, and what what, what do you see as its prospects for success? Well, I think it has higher prospects of success than before the summit, where we had similar uh, agreements that had been made. Uh, the, The problem has been that a number of countries don't feel vulnerable. They, they don't see themselves as subject to any attack by terrorists. What they don't understand is if terrorists blow off a nuclear device in a Western city, let's say in Manhattan, kill half a million people outright, the, the impact on the world economy will be far more serious than I think many people realize. And so I think the president was trying to communicate that, look, we, we all share vulnerability to such an attack, and therefore we all need to work together to prevent it. And I think he has raised these, the uh, awareness of the possible consequences of such an attack, which in itself ought to provide an incentive for these nations to do what we all should have been doing, including the United States, by the way, uh, particularly since 9-11. And we have been treating this in a routine fashion. Now, I think the International Atomic Energy Agency, which was present at the summit, will play a role in providing assistance to some countries there's agreements that will help each other. Uh, countries that, that possess highly enriched uranium, for example, but don't have the means uh, or the technology to secure it properly will get assistance from those countries that do and from the International Atomic Energy Agency, uh, whose charter it is to provide such assistance. And so what is your level of confidence that we will be able to achieve the goal of securing uh, all of the, the so-called fissile material? Well, what I'm, I'm hopeful. And, of course, as you're suggesting, the proof will be in the implementation. I'm hoping that those particularly vulnerable sites that have relatively large quantities of this material, at a minimum, we can get those secured, so at least we confront the terrorists with the need to gather highly enriched uranium, for example, from a number of sites in order to get enough to make a weapon. So I'm hopeful that within four years we ought to be able to have a pretty 
high level of confidence in the security of those facilities that contain significant amount significant amounts of fissile material. Mm-hmm. And General Guard, will some of this material be brought to the United States uh, for safekeeping? Are there some bilateral agreements that were struck at this conference uh, for smaller nations, particularly former Soviet republics, uh, that have some residual uh, uh, inventories? Uh, are, are we actually going to be taking possession of some of this? Yeah, we 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 just did uh, from uh, Chile. Uh, we we have the facilities for storage and for what's called down blending, uh, highly enriched uranium. So does Russia. Uh, some of it from from uh, the former Soviet Union probably will go back to Russia. There have been so-called take back programs, uh, both in Russia and the United States, uh, to do precisely that. It's just that we we haven't given it the priority it deserves. We haven't confronted the problem with a sense of urgency. Mm-hmm. So putting, putting a four-year limit on it, I mean, uh, just a year or two ago, Senator Sam Nunn uh, said that if we continue at the rate we're going, it would be decades before we secured that material. Mm-hmm. That's how slowly we were moving. So putting a time frame on it uh, helps to kick these action programs in and to get moving. In general, do you see uh, that the both, both Presidents Bush uh, missed significant opportunities to try to secure uh, loose nuclear material, because, after all, Poppy Bush was there when the Soviet Union uh, broke apart, and I believed that there was a significant missed opportunity there uh, at the what, what we now know was the end of the Cold War. And then when his son took office, he essentially repudiated uh, the legacy of arms control and just basically uh, you know, threw away a treaty, and uh, established a, a whole different course. So is President Obama, uh, he's polite enough not to uh, uh, point fingers at either of the President's Bush, but do you feel that he's acting uh, on something that each of those prior presidents uh, should have uh, acted on? Well, you, you will recall that the disintegration of the Soviet Union, there was put in something called the the non-Luger program, where we went into Russia to secure their weapons and fissile materials. So that that program was initiated uh, under Bush one and carried on during the Clinton administration. But as far as converting research reactors using highly enriched uranium to low enriched uranium, and in taking back the highly enriched uranium that we had scattered to some 26 countries during the Atoms for Peace program that began with President Eisenhower, that simply was not pursued by any of the former presidents to the extent that it should have been. Mm-hmm. And as far as Bush, too, is concerned, the philosophy of the administration was to avoid uh, treaties and international agreements that might limit our flexibility. So what you, what you got with Bush II was the Moscow Treaty, which reduced the number of deployed nuclear warheads to 2,200 by 2012. Absolutely no inspection or verification involved in the treaty, and you only had to get down... Uh, to that number in 2012 at the very time the treaty expired. So it wasn't much of an arms control treaty, although it was helpful in reducing the number of deployed strategic warheads. I think uh, President Obama is the first president that has elevated uh, arms control in a comprehensive way to the to the top priority in American foreign policy. 
with his uh, moving speech in Prague on the 5th of April of last year. Well, I certainly agree he's made it a priority, and uh, I applaud that. My concern is that this New START treaty is uh, not that compelling, uh, and that uh, some of the critics have argued that, for example, uh, you can fudge the numbers, particularly of the number of warheads contained in aircraft, and that, uh, you know, this is a, not to not to pun unnecessarily, that it's a good start and it fills a void because uh, there isn't currently uh, even a baseline agreement between the U.S. and Russia. So uh, this new START treaty, should it be confirmed or, or uh, I'm sorry, uh, uh, ratified by the Senate, uh, certainly s- establishes a new framework, but many argue that it doesn't really uh, provide additional meaningful cuts and that the 33% is a bit of a uh, phantom or uh, inflated figure. Well, yes, it doesn't do all that uh, some of us concerned about uh, nuclear arms control would prefer. However, it does cut delivery vehicles by 50% below START, uh, START 1 treaty. We will actually have to destroy some delivery vehicles. What you say about warheads is true. Uh, There's a a limit of 1,550 deployed warheads, but there's a lot of flexibility in how many you can actually put on aircraft because each uh, aircraft equipped to deliver strategic nuclear weapons is counted as only one warhead. But, But the precise number of deployed warheads to me isn't as important an issue as reinstating inspection and verification so that we have stability and predictability in in U.S.-Russian nuclear relationships, kind of defusing the uncertainty that might be present in the absence of such a treaty. So it's called New Start, and it's just that. It's a new start. As the president himself said in Prague, this, this treaty is preliminary to actually engaging all of the nuclear weapons countries in order to, to reduce the number of warheads. New START doesn't reduce a single warhead. It simply reduces the number of deployed warheads. Understood. And General Guard, uh, as you see these these two um, very visible events, the signing in Prague of the New START Treaty with uh, President Medvedev and then the 47 or so nations that gathered in Washington, um, do you see this as a, a real moment in time? And uh, without uh, calling you an old man, Uh, You're a wise person with a great deal of experience going all the way back to uh, the Korean War. And so given that uh, span of time that you've experienced, do you see this as a particularly ripe moment uh, to move forward uh, even beyond these two steps that we're talking about now? Oh, absolutely. The the nonproliferation treaty can be seen in one sense as, as a success. You remember... Uh, President Kennedy was was concerned that there would be 20-odd nuclear powers in the 1970s. There are nine. That's certainly uh, four, four more than we had at the time we signed the Nonproliferation Treaty. But that's fewer additional powers than the number that either gave up nuclear weapons or stopped their nuclear weapons program. But... With the recent events in North Korea and Iran uh, and the the possibility of additional nuclear weapons states, we're at something of a tipping point now. We need to strengthen the non-proliferation treaty and take actions to nip this before we get an expansion of the number of nuclear weapons states which will mean more nuclear weapons, more likelihood of their use, 
more likelihood of materials falling into the hands of terrorists. So it's extremely important that we deal with this. Uh, we have in May the review conference for the Non-Proliferation Treaty. Part of the President's program is to close some of the loopholes in that treaty and to strengthen it. And we're going to need the support of the non-nuclear weapon states to subject themselves to even more stringent inspections and restrictions than they have in the past. And that's why it was so important for the president to announce, as he did, the goal of working toward a world free of nuclear weapons. Now, frankly, I don't think we'll get there. But we are obligated by Article 6 of the Non-Proliferation Treaty to pursue in good faith negotiations on effective measures relating to nuclear disarmament. And the president made that commitment as a goal of the United States, and that's a precondition for getting the cooperation and support of the non-nuclear weapon states if we are to prevent the proliferation that Alberade, the head of the International Atomic Energy Agency, has warned us would be likely if we continue on our present course. Mm -hmm. General Guard, at the conference, uh, President Obama gave some special attention to India and Pakistan. <clears throat> and certainly there are uh, grave concerns about these two uh, warring nations that have been at odds for a long time and have both uh, developed nuclear weapons. And first to India... Uh, President Bush gave them uh, quite some preferences and basically allowed them to self-inspect uh, their re uh, commitment to uh, reduce uh, nuclear weapons and to uh, also secure uh, nuclear materials. Um, do you think that India and Pakistan have gotten over what I see as a, a very strong preference that the Bush administration gave to India? No, I don't think that uh, Pakistan has gotten over that at all. Uh, that, in, in my view, undercut the non-proliferation treaty because even by U.S. law, we were unable to provide uh, assistance or materials to nations that had uh, not signed the non-proliferation treaty and abided by its provisions. So we made an exception for India. And when you start deciding that which nations you can support in, in proliferating nuclear weapons because you believe that their form of government is compatible with your own, uh, that's a grave error. Pakistan is still smarting under that. We uh, have agreed to provide uh, nuclear fuel for India's non-military programs, but of course the effect of that is to free up uh, their own materials for use in their military programs. And we're not kidding anybody. So I think that was a grave error. Now when it comes to Pakistan, I'd like to look at two uh, aspects, sir. Uh, first of all, vis-a-vis uh, -vis India. Um, do do we really feel that uh, uh, the president did make a comment uh, over the past week that he thinks that the nuclear nuclear weapons in uh, Pakistan are secure? Uh, I have problems with that because the military, uh, which is, uh, I believe, in control of those facilities, um, has a habit of taking control of the government there. And uh, we don't know how long... Uh, it will be before the, the next time that they basically take over the civilian government. Uh, Musharraf was the most recent uh, example. Um, and so I, I'm not sure I share the president's confidence that uh, Pakistan's nukes are secure, uh, particularly given the war that we've got underway on its, uh, on, on its neighbor in Afghanistan. Well, I share your concern. I, I believe what the president has said is that Pakistan has, has taken measures to ensure the security of the facilities in which they store their weapons. The thing that worries me is the fact that 
some of the Pakistani military, particularly in its intelligence service, is not unsympathetic to members of the Taliban. Uh, and also the unrest in Pakistan with the now the Pakistani Taliban as well as the Afghan Taliban being located there. The country's unstable. It has serious economic problems. The potential for unrest is high. So uh, a recent study that just completed at Harvard University on looking at the whole situation of, of nuclear weapons around the world uh, listed the potential for problems in Pakistan right up at the top, which angered the Pakistani government. But I think that judgment is right. There is concern uh, about the f keeping those weapons from falling into the wrong hands. Mm -hmm. And then there's the issue of the AQCon network and the proliferation that occurred roughly from 1990 to uh, 2004, uh, where uh, Mr. Khan who is celebrated in Pakistan as the father of its nuclear weapon, uh, was busy uh, sharing technology, hardware, blueprints, uh, and in some cases, uh, uh, you know, supplies, the active ingredients, uh, to help other countries, notably North Korea and Iran, uh, develop a nuclear weapons capability. Um, and I don't feel that we've really come to grips with the totality of that effort it's not that I need to see AQ Khan, uh, you know, behind bars or, uh, you know, punished in, in some extreme way, but I don't think that we have uh, been able to get past the political sensitivities of the, the Pakistanis, and, and you were very generous in your reference to the ISI and its links to the Taliban. Uh, but my concern is that we haven't really fully exposed uh, the work of AQ Khan, and therefore we aren't uh, fully knowledgeable of risks that may continue to exist from the, uh, the work that he did. Well, I, I think you're absolutely right. We have been denied uh, the, the requests that we've made to inter interview him have been denied. He presumably is in some sort of loose house arrest uh, but we don't know who all of his associates were, whether there were some associates uh, in Dubai or someplace such as that. Well, the, the Tinner family in Switzerland uh, deserves much deeper inspection, and uh, they were brought to trial in Switzerland. But to my knowledge, uh, there's no U.S. agency nor the Congress that has really uh, fully ferreted out uh, the work that uh, father and son's Tinner did and uh, their their association with AQ Khan. Well, I, I'm afraid you're right, although I'm not familiar with tenor, the tenor case as such. I do knew, know that AQ Khan had a network. Uh, our intelligence agencies attracted for some length of time, I think didn't clamp down sooner because they wanted to try to find out what his connections were. How successful we were, we just don't know. Uh, and I share your concern. General Guard, also, uh, Israel backed out of the Washington conference at the last minute. And uh, I understand their sensitivities and, uh, you know, the, the game that they play, that they have nukes, but they don't publicly acknowledge it. And I can understand that uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu may have felt that uh, he would have been a distraction uh, at this conference. But there's a bit of an elephant in the room when we are challenging nations to secure nu nuclear weapons, and we appear to give uh, even greater preference to Israel than uh, you and I discussed about India. And this, of course, uh, gives some allies of Iran the uh, ammunition for their arguments that the effort to isolate Iran is misguided and one-sided, and that in that region, uh, as long as Israel is a nuclear power, uh, there will be inevitable efforts by Iran and perhaps other uh, Arab-slash-Islamic nations uh, to acquire nuclear weapons in, in their view in self-defense against Israel. Well, uh, first, 
let me say that uh, Israel did send a high-level official. It was Netanyahu personally who backed out. Mm-hmm. So they were present uh, at the conference, and there's speculation in the press that Netanyahu didn't want to be pressed to sign the non-proliferation treaty uh, as the prime minister, so he, he declined to come. But you're absolutely right. What What surprises me, frankly, because... It's been well known ever since it was leaked by someone that the Israelis threw in jail for 25 years for doing it, that Israel does have a nuclear capability. But they maintain this position of ambiguity. Uh, I'm surprised, frankly, that uh, other Middle East countries have not moved ahead to develop their weapons as well. Uh, And we do face a dilemma in not criticizing the Israelis for developing weapons while we do criticize others. On the other hand, Iran did have a, was a signatory, as is Israel is not. That's right. The non-proliferation treaty, and Iran concealed its activities and wasn't caught for 18 years. And as you know, we, we just blew the whistle on a new facility that they are constructing but have not yet put into operation. So the, the argument goes, well, Iran is not living up, its, up to its obligations. Israel at least did not violate any obligations under the non-proliferation treaty. I don't mean that as a justification. I think that we should follow through on uh, commitments that we have made to urge a, uh, a nuclear-free zone in the Middle East. And, General, uh, I, I think you would agree that uh, on the proverbial Arab street, um, it, there's not much concern about who has or hasn't signed the NPT. Uh, right. It's about who's got a nuke. Yes, I, I don't dispute that at all. Mm-hmm. So, General, as we wrap up here, uh, first of all, I really appreciate your comments and uh, the wisdom that you have from your years of service. I appreciate that you say nuclear and not nuclear. Um, but I also have noted uh, that in in recent months, we're seeing a lot of uh, people of military uh, experience from your era uh, standing up for uh, strong efforts to uh, disarm and ultimately rid the world of nuclear weapons. And uh, for my listeners, the most uh, uh, notable, if not outrageous, uh, person to join this effort is Henry Kissinger. Uh, and I, I want to add, because my listeners are very sensitive about Kissinger and, uh, you know, consider him uh, a, a war criminal in, in many respects. The one thing I'd like to say nice about Henry Kissinger is we now have clear evidence that he uh, ignored and rejected Richard Nixon's call to use nuclear weapons in Vietnam. And uh, I think that is to his credit. It doesn't diminish the uh, criticism that many other people rightfully aim at Henry Kissinger. But uh, the former Secretary of State and National Security Advisor has joined with Sam Nunn, the former Georgia senator who you referenced earlier, also former Reagan Secretary of State George Shultz, and former Clinton Secretary of Defense Bill Perry in uh, creating a, a quartet who are uh, speaking out in unison in support of the aims that uh, I, I believe you embrace as well. So what, what's going on here? We talked earlier about this, uh, this moment in time that appears to be very ripe, but also uh, senior and seasoned uh, former national security and military leaders are joining this effort, and I think that's notable. From your own perspective, uh, why do you see this happening? Well, I think the realization that we are at a tipping point, there's a real risk of proliferation of new nuclear weapon states. Once you get the, the more states that acquire these weapons, the more likely they will be used. The more weapons there will be, the more potential for falling into the hands of terrorists. After all, A nuclear attack against this country is clearly the most serious national security threat that we face. And uh, 
I, for one, even during those days that we talked about using nuclear weapons on the plains of Western Europe, fighting a, a, a nuclear war is a no-win situation for all of the combatants. So I, I think these statesmen uh, and George Shultz and, and Henry Kissinger cannot be accused of being flaming liberals. But they have a sense of responsibility for the security of the country, uh, whatever unfortunate positions they may have taken on other issues earlier. So I, th I think there's an increasing awareness of how serious this could be. My concern is that the body politic has become complacent. Uh, I've, I've talked many times with the members of our legislature about why they haven't increased appropriations to, for take-back programs and conversion to low-enriched uranium. And they shrug their shoulders and they say, well, we respond to the concerns of our constituents, and our constituents aren't concerned about this. So I think some of these statesmen, being responsible as they are, are trying, trying to raise the issue and make people more aware of the risks that we face in the hope that we'll do something to ameliorate and hopefully eventually eliminate these risks. General Guard, thank you for your work. Uh, you could be comfortably retired and playing golf every day at Pebble Beach. And, uh, <laughs> well, I hurt my shoulder. My golf game's gone. <laughs> but I appreciate that you uh, stay in Washington much of the time and uh, work on these issues, and I'll see if I can fire up some of those constituents to uh, tell their uh, legislators that they care about this issue and want to see further work taken on it. I hope you will. General Robert Gard, Lieutenant General, retired from the U.S. Army, Chairman of the Center for Arms Control and Nonproliferation. Visit the website armscontrolcenter.org. General, thank you very much. I was pleased to participate. Thanks for listening to this edition of the Peter B. Collins Show. Your feedback is welcome. Email me, peter, at peterbcollins.com. Happy trails. Happy trails to you until we meet again. Happy trails.